Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, I'll speak with Charles Shapiro, president of the World Affairs Council of Atlanta and senior lecturer at Georgia State University. We'll get his thoughts regarding yesterday's attacks in Kabul leading up to the August 31st deadline for the U.S. to fully withdraw from Afghanistan. Plus, the coronavirus cases in Georgia schools, well, they continue to increase, and that includes Gwinnett County Schools. What needs to happen to slow the spread? I'll speak with newly named superintendent Dr. Calvin Watts. Also, Atlanta Pride cancels for the second year in a row due to the pandemic. We'll speak to the organizers and some breaking news regarding the future of the Mall West End. Yet another New York development group wants to buy the historic property. But a West End residents and business owners group, well, they want dialogue, transparency and collaboration. All that's coming up in just a moment. Now, first, this, as reported from our WABE newsroom, the city schools of Decatur could become the first Metro Atlanta school district to require teachers and students receive COVID-19 vaccines. Decatur Superintendent Maggie Furman says she's consulted with the district's lawyers about requiring vaccines, and there's no law that prevents the school system from mandating them for staff. That is as long as accommodations are made. What do I mean by that? For example, if an educator has a medical condition that would prevent this educator from receiving the shot, the district would need to find an appropriate accommodation like working remotely. The district can also require students to get the vaccine, again, with accommodations for those who can't receive it. Now, board members agreed on mandating the shots, and Superintendent Furman says she'll consult with lawyers to draft a policy and present it for approval at next month's board meeting. WABE's education reporter Martha Dalton, of course, will be all over this. And finally. Ah, yes. 25 years ago on this date, did your life change? Mine did. Outcast release ATLians. And if you don't know, just ask somebody. Andre 3000, Big Boy, sent a message. It was a group's second album, but this was different. It was all about Atlanta. A couple of years ago, on Headland and the Low, what's the starter? Something good, where me and my broke the martyr through the hood, just trying to find that hookup. Now every day we looked up at the ceiling, watching ceiling fans go Ah, uh, yeah. Tell me about the first time you heard ATLians, please. I would love to know. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. This is Closer Look. Light up in that spot, knowing that we can rock, doing the hole in the wall club. We must stop, like freeze. We making the crowd move, but we not making no G's and that's a no, no. A one, two, dope, dope. Then the Cadillac, the college. Went from Plague is about to put this up. 
And you're listening to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Members of Georgia's congressional district are responding to yesterday's bomb attacks in Kabul. The attacks at the airport left 13 U.S. service members and so far more than 160 Afghans dead. However, an official number has yet to be confirmed. Georgia Democratic Representative Hank Johnson in a statement said in part, quote, I deeply regret the loss of life due to the cowardly terrorist attack on American soldiers and innocent Afghans seeking refuge from terror, close quote. Also, that includes a comment from Buddy Carter. Now, he is apparently going to appear on Closer Look next week, and we expect to have more from him. Meanwhile, what still remains is how the U.S. will safely evacuate those remaining Americans, which is reported to be about 1,500, and if possible, those Afghan nationals who have worked with the U.S. during this war. Now, yesterday we know that uh, President Biden did have a response. Here's what he said. To those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. I will defend our interests and our people with every measure at my command. And I'm joined now by Charles Shapiro, President, World Affairs Council of Atlanta and Senior Lecturer at Georgia State University. Charles Shapiro, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. Thanks for the invitation. Pleased to be here with you. The Biden administration warned of possible attacks by this ISIS-K group, and then it happened. Your reaction to just the timeline, and do you think through your lens, with all your expertise in this area, that perhaps the U.S. should have been more prepared in working with perhaps the Afghan military to be on the lookout for possible dangers in light of what happened, what we now know what happened. Well, the Afghan military has has disappeared. So the ability to work with them is essentially zero. Um, we had worked out the commanders on the ground. The Navy admiral had worked out a sort of Movis Vivendi with actually with Taliban who are protecting the airport. Um, and that is difficult as you can imagine. And uh, they had anticipated an attack by this fringe group, uh, ISIS-K as it's called. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, it happened. Um, tragic. And, I mean, you reported the loss of life of both Afghans and American service personnel and some of the Afghans who were killed apparently are Afghan-Americans, dual nationals. Mm-hmm. So this is just horrible. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff you could do if you could go dial back and turn the clock back and do things differently. Um, but uh, we're, we're dealing with it the best we can right now. And I think that um, the president is taking the advice of the Central Command Commander, General McKenzie, mm-hmm and following his advice on how to get those people out when we have to shut down the evacuation of civilians so we can get the military personnel out as well. The president vowing to bring justice for the attacks, but given that the U.S. is still trying to evacuate so many people out there and that now we, we are learning there could be more attacks, the priority has to be, through your lens, Charles Shapiro, and I think a lot of folks, that the priority has to be now to focus on getting folks out. And if you want to worry about retaliation and bringing folks to justice, you do that later. They're two separate things. There'll be two separate groups of military personnel who are doing that. So I, I guarantee you that our intel is surging right now to try to find those people and find out where they are. Um, we will respond at the 
time and place of our choosing, not theirs. In the meantime, the other group of military personnel is focusing and getting people out through that airport. And that's a huge undertaking. Although former President Donald Trump set an agreement with the Taliban, and I think the initial withdrawal date might have been back in May, but then it's August Correct. 31st deadline to leave Afghanistan is through the Biden administration. But I want to ask you, too, perhaps, should they have looked at really, was this going to be realistic? Because I think at that time, it was about maybe 2,500 U.S. troops, several thousand NATO soldiers, and we're talking thousands upon thousands of civilian contractors who remained in the country from that time that President Biden said, OK, look, we're going to look at August 31st. That Was that enough time to come up with a significant plan and then to start? Absolutely, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, they, they came up with a plan. But I mean, let me be frank. There's I mean, you, you, you had the comments by members of our congressional delegation. I mean, we're quick to take everything and put it into our Republican versus Democrat uh, binary and quick to criticize. There's enough criticism to go around. We should have started bringing the people who are U.S. military interpreters out in the Obama administration, Mm -hmm. in the Obama administration. As soon as President Obama decided, you know, we need to we need to wind down this war. We should have been looking forward to taking some of those people out who work for the United States and were in exposed locations. Um, in the Trump administration, as soon as Donald Trump signed the agreement with the Taliban in March of last year, 2020, we sort of started bringing out even more people. And then when Biden embraced the Trump withdrawal plan, pushed it back a few months, I mean, then you really have to move into high gear. And we didn't do any of that. So we're talking about, if you're talking about U.S. citizens, mm-hmm. Afghan citizens who worked for the United States in some capacity. It's not just interpreters. It's all kinds of people who, you know, the, the guy that, that uh, was the mechanic in the motor pool at the embassy, right? People serving food at uh, military bases around the country, all kinds of folks. Civil society, people who stood up for women's rights, for rule of law, um, for human rights, and their families, and their families. So you're talking 300,000 people, 400,000 people. That's that's an impossible task in one airport with one runway and no commercial flights coming in. Georgia Republican Representative Buddy Carter in a statement said, quote, this is a direct result of President Biden's weak and failed leadership. This administration's incompetence has led to the loss of American lives and has left countless more at risk. While the blame game will continue but, Mr. Shapiro, can the U.S. evacuate the remaining folks with the time that we have? we got four days left here. The answer is no. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get out um, people who already have visas and are at the airport. We'll get out um, the American citizens who want to go. And there's some who want to stay. Um, we'll, we will be able to get those out. And we'll get more than that out. And I'm sure we'll get tens of thousands out in the next couple of days. Uh, but are we going to get everybody out who wants to get out? The answer is absolutely not. You are someone who knows the importance of being able to have collaboration and agreements with nations, whether they are allies or not. Would it be worth it trying to have 
extended an extended date and agreement with the Taliban? Well, I think we tried and the Taliban refused. I mean, so that that that's the deadline. And as much as we don't like it, we need their cooperation to keep that that airport operating. Look, you know, if you could dial back the clock, if it were me, I think we should not have signed the agreement with the Taliban back in 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't think that President Biden should have stuck with that agreement with President, which President Trump had negotiated. we, some accuse the United States of having strategic impatience. And that is just, you know, we, we don't pay attention to a problem until it becomes a crisis and then we overreact. Um, the idea of keeping 2,500, 3,000 troops in Afghanistan longer, I mean, for, I mean several years longer, um, working with the government of Afghanistan to ensure it's in place. Um, I'm not an expert in Afghanistan, but sure. that's appeals to to me because this has implications not just in Afghanistan, but it does for those people who are relying on the United States around the world. I mean, think of if you're in Taiwan right now, mm-hmm. you're in South Korea, Ukraine, the Baltic states, and from my perspective, most importantly, India. Um, India thinks that we are no longer a reliable partner, and they were on the verge of being willing to enter into a deeper strategic relationship with the United States. And they are all those countries are reconsidering right now. As we wrap up, Charles Shapiro, what will history say then about, if it hasn't already said, about this nearly two decades war in Afghanistan, which started as Operation Enduring Freedom? Was anything was was anything accomplished through your lens? Well, certainly we suppressed uh, terrorism coming out of Afghanistan for two decades, and that's important. Um, it led to the our ability to locate and, and ultimately to kill Osama bin Laden, and mm-hmm. that is super important. Um, but was it worth the investment of time, money, personnel, civilian and military over those 20 years? I think the conclusion of, of historians, looking back 20 years from now, not not this weekend, Will, will be no, that it will appear to have been an, been an error. And thousands and thousands of lives that were lost. Charles Shapiro, President, World Affairs Council of Atlanta and Senior Lecturer at Georgia State University. Thank you for taking the time. going to bring you back as all this unfolds, especially as we hit that August 31st deadline. Thank you. Thanks, Rose. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Closer Look continues now. Coming up in just a moment, I'll speak with newly named Gwinnett County School Superintendent. But first, some breaking news regarding yet another twist in the ongoing sale of the Mall West End. Now pay attention because at last check, Tishman Spire, a New York real estate firm, was under contract to purchase the 300,000 plus total square feet of property. But then a recent piece from the AJC revealed Tishman Spire is no longer interested and is pulled out of the deal. Well, Closer Look has learned another New York development entity, the Prusik Group, is looking to purchase Mall West End. But a letter sent to them from a coalition of residents and business owners called West End Neighborhood Development reveals concerns regarding Prusik's, quote, lack of collaboration and community engagement 
regarding your firm's plan to acquire Mall West End within 60 days. Now, in a statement to Closer Look regarding that letter from the West End Group, Andrew Katz, co-founder and principal of Presick, writes, quote, We appreciate the letter from West End Neighborhood Development and welcome the opportunity to meet with them. We are currently in the first few days of our due diligence process for the acquisition of the existing mall. As we fully understand the history of this site and importance to the community, we have not begun any long-term planning for the center and rather are focused on the short-term viability of the mall and sustaining its existence for the immediate future. We plan to fully engage any and all local community groups and partners to assure that the needs and desires of the community are addressed, close quote. Now, we also reached out to the owners of Mall West End, that is the HT West End LLC group. We have yet to receive a response as of airtime. We also contacted, con- contacted a representative of the West End Neighborhood Development and no response either. Y'all need to pick up the phone. Closer Look will continue to cover this important community issue and a note of disclosure, tar- Charles Taylor, Principal owner of HT Weston LLC is also a current board member of Public Broadcast in Atlanta. That's all the information we have. That's what you need to know. We'll continue to cover this. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Yes, just weeks into the new fall school year. School districts, well, they're still trying to navigate in-person class instruction while we know that coronavirus cases continue to increase. And as you know, in recent weeks, we've been having conversations with several area superintendents about their plans. And well, now we move to someone who just became the newest leader of one of the largest school districts in Georgia, Dr. Calvin Watts was recently named the superintendent of Gwinnett County Public Schools. He joins me now to talk more about all of this. Uh, welcome, Superintendent Watts. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And I appreciate you having me. As How they, are you? I'm fine. As they say, you Good. just got here on July 30th. It was official. And like all other yes. superintendents, besides just getting ready for the new school year, you got this pandemic as a top priority. Tell our listeners right now your assessments. How do you view what's going on? What more do you all need to do? What concerns you? That's a lot, of, a loaded question, but have at it. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, first of all, I want to uh, say thank you, Rose, for for having me, and and most importantly, know that I've just arrived from my previous organization, where we know that this is the third year that uh, that school districts, superintendents, and all uh, staff, included families and students, have been impacted by this pandemic. And so what's important for me to share with our community is is that we've begun this year uh, with a focus on mitigation strategies, how we can be as proactive in supporting uh, the 
uh, I would say the limiting, if not eliminating to the extent that we can of the, the spread within our, our schools. Uh, and we've done so by adhering to CDC's guidance and making sure that, that we uh, provide a mask uh, mandate while students and staff are on uh, our GCPS campuses. That is, has helped in many ways. I will also say uh, in, in our support of our core business of continuing uh, in-person instruction, which we do believe is the most effective way uh, to teach and to learn. We also understand that there are challenges given uh, our COVID environment. But to that point, we have seen an increase uh, in the number of students who have actually rejoined uh, from a digital environment to in-person uh, to the tune of about 640 students uh, since we, we began uh, school this year. So that's a, a brief snapshot of where we are. Uh, what what was that number again, through. Superintendent Watts? What was yes, 640 students. And that's grades kindergarten through 12. What about educators? Are so, there educators so, that have contracted the virus? Well, we do have certainly... Uh, adults who have contracted the virus. While I do not have specific numbers uh, in front of me, most of, of what we, we are seeing is not spread that's taking place within our schools, but it's, it's spread that's taking place within our communities. That being the case, do you are you also offering virtual as an option for parents? Yes, we are. Uh, as I mentioned, our, our, our students, our staff, and our communities and family safety is our number one priority. And because of that, we are offering uh, several mitigation strategies. One, obviously, is making sure that we are uh, wearing masks while we are in, in person. Uh, the other is, is ensuring that there are options for our families, options for digital learning or what we refer to as concurrent learning, where there's a combination of digital and in-person learning. Uh, equally as important, Rose, that there is a focus uh, to ensure that we are uh, exploring options for uh, how how might we ensure that that not just mask wearing and mitigation strategies are in place, but also uh, encouraging our staff and those who are of age uh, to to be vaccinated. Uh, we know that that plays a role in mitigating uh, the spread within our communities and certainly within our schools. You have had parents who have filed lawsuits. You have parents who wanted masks to be optional and yes. not mandated. Can you tell me some of those conversations that you've had, if you've had with those parents or educators? And yes. what was, okay. No, please go ahead. No, was I was going to ask you, what was the outcome of that? Well, we've had many conversations, I would say, in, in the first, literally the first uh, four weeks of, or three and a half to be exact of my tenure as superintendent in Gwinnett County Public Schools. Uh, we've had individuals who have shared during pub public comment, uh, one of our most recent uh, board meetings, and that is certainly an appropriate time. It is a board meeting that is held in the public. We provide those opportunities for families and individuals to share. I have heard uh, several concerns that are based on uh, our adherence to CDC's recommendation uh, how it impacts some of our students, uh, some students who may not be able to uh, to express themselves in the way that they need to during the instructional day because uh, a mask might, uh, or in fact does uh, hide half of, of an individual's face. And so those were concerns that were, were brought up from an instructional and a communication standpoint. Uh, there's also a concern that 
that individuals have, have shared from a uh, from their perspective uh, that they were not comfortable or competent that masks actually help uh, mitigate uh, the spread of COVID. While I uh, am an English major from Howard University, and mm -hmm. that's where I earned my bachelor's degree, I am not an epidemiologist, but my mom worked in the health field. And it's certainly what I do know about uh, the recommendations that we have received from the CDC is that, that masks uh, do support uh, the limiting and mitigation of, of spread. And so those are the strategies that we put in place uh, we hope at some point, certainly, that COVID will be behind us. But until then, uh, these strategies are, are in our uh, best interest to support teaching and learning and the safety of our students, our staff, and our families. As mentioned, Gwinnett County, obviously, is one of the largest, if not largest, school districts in Georgia. You've been tracking those students who have not returned and what those numbers could possibly look like at the end of this year, school year. Yes. So we are we are looking at those numbers. I, I, while I do not have the exact number, uh, we do know that, that several of, of our students and families have made decisions uh, to have their children educated by in different uh, different formats outside of Gwinnett County Public Schools. Well, I've not spoken with any uh, or, or all of those families. Certainly, mm -hmm. I would imagine that they're making those decisions based on the, what they believe are, are best for their children. To your knowledge right now, Superintendent Watts, it, are there any classrooms with any specific schools, any schools that you are looking at that perhaps you might have to switch to virtual for a few weeks, maybe a month? Can you let the community know if there are some concerns right now as it relates to individual schools? So thank you for that question. I think there are, uh, out of the 141 plus uh, schools that we have, we, we do have uh clusters uh, within our schools, which is another name for the strands mm -hmm. of schools from kindergarten through 12th grade uh, that, that support uh, each and every one of our students. What we've learned most recently, I think it's important to note that that COVID and the pandemic is not, not simply just impacting our students, not simply impacting our families, it's impacting our staff. And our staff are members of our communities. And what we have seen is that we are uh, seeing several of our uh, some employee groups that uh, that have been out for a significant period of time and and what that does it provides uh, us opportunities and creates an impact uh, that we may need to adjust some of our uh, staffing needs uh, our substitutes we know we have a fewer number of substitutes uh, teachers who are available uh, at this time so we are working on uh, strategies to make sure that our students are safe that they're they're being taught by a, a classroom teacher, uh, but but that is a pressure point for us right now, given the impact uh, of COVID in some of our uh, areas and clusters within Gwinnett County Public Schools. Don't know if you heard, but earlier in the broadcast, we talked about the city schools of Decatur could become the first Metro Atlanta school district to require teachers and students receive COVID-19 vaccines. Now that superintendent, uh, Maggie Furman, is consulting with district lawyers about you know, whether or not, because there is no law that prevents the school system from mandating that for staff. Is that something that you and the Gwinnett County School Board could talk about? Do you think that could possibly be something in the future here? Do you think it's necessary? Thank you for that question, Rose. I, I do think that we are in a state of, of emergency. Certainly, when we think about our pandemic, we're still in a pandemic. That's a reminder that I provide for our entire community. 
while I can say that we have not made any decisions, and I have not had that conversation specifically with our board, if and in fact we do believe that is a necessary next step or an option for us to consider, rest assured those, those conversations would take place between uh, me and our board first. And certainly uh, if we were to, to engage in that, uh, that option, uh, our community would, would certainly be among the first uh, to hear about that. You I'll be paying attention to other school districts, certainly. And we are, we are having conversations with colleagues as we speak. So I, I do understand the importance of this, this discussion today. You have what you call a look, listen, and learn tour. I understand that you've been visiting so far, I think, maybe 18 schools. What have you heard? What have you seen? You know, we do our work here at Close Look. Uh, yeah, I see. Yeah, 18, <laughs> right? Spot on. Well, well, well said. Well done. <laughs> what, what have you heard? Yes. So first, first and foremost, I've, I've heard from all, all members of our school community, and that, that's what's, what's been a, a joy. It is also an investment in time, and, and I say an investment because this, this is the work. Uh, for the first 100 days or so, my goal has been to listen to uh, our most important uh, individuals within our school, certainly our students, uh, our staff who support them. And what I've heard is that there are students who are incredibly excited to be back in person. Mm-hmm. They missed uh, that that uh, esprit de corps, that 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 opportunity to be with their their friends during the instructional day and and during their their break time or lunch time. I've also heard from staff members the very same thing that it's been good to be in person. It's good to be back to see their students, uh, to to be back in the work in in a format and a form that is more familiar. And we've had to adjust, right, uh, for the last three years, whether it's a digital or concurrent, the combination thereof. And that's not how most teachers, and I will always consider myself a teacher. I began my career as a middle grades teacher. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were not taught how to, to teach virtually. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other side of that, 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 those are new skills that we've developed, which I don't believe that's a bad thing. And I have asked uh, and continued to pose questions to our community uh, about, first of all, what is it that we, we need to keep doing that we have learned has, has turned out to be an advantage for us in how we deliver instruction, how we deliver uh, other resources such as meals. Uh, and and some, some strategies that we've had to learn, those may be strategies that we keep in our back pocket even when COVID is no longer with us. But we've also asked, what is it that we need to stop doing or, or perhaps change as a result of COVID? And I would say we've learned several ways to, to teach and to learn uh, that I think can be an advantage going forward. So, what what so, concerns do you have, particularly for those within a student population who, as we know, there's always this talk of the disparity, the gap in terms of learning loss and the achievement gap, particularly as it relates to black and brown students, not all, obviously, um, and their white counterparts. Are educators right now also in an assessment mode for all students to see where, where students are? And then what, I don't want to use that word remedial, but what educational track they need to be put on to, to recover whatever this learning loss that occurred. Well, thank you again for, for that important question. The, the notion of teaching and learning, especially in these times, we, we talk about learning loss, and, and yet I, I want to refer to that as the, the exact opposite, which is our goal now is to accelerate learning. Okay. Uh, and our goal is to make sure that our students are, are learning concepts uh, that are relative to our academic knowledge and skills, 
and to their respective grade levels. They're learning concepts ideally at a faster rate for the purpose of retaining them longer. Now that's that takes certainly educational and instructional strategy, which I have every confidence in our team's ability to create instructional environments that will provide that opportunity for our students. But I will also tell you, it is not a secret. This is the most extraordinary uh, time for an educator. Uh, and certainly in the, the 400 years plus that we have taught school in this way in this country. Mm -hmm. But the reality is we are learning some valuable lessons. Uh, there are certainly some, some concerns that we do have, but we have taken uh, our resources that are, that are uh, in front of us, whether it's financial, whether it's human resources or time, and we are allocating those resources in a way to advance learning at a faster rate, ideally so that our students uh, can learn it uh, and, and retain it at, at higher levels. That is our goal. That being the case, as we finally wrap up here, have you had a chance to even look at the strategic plan? I mean, right now we're all still in a pandemic. Have you had a chance to review that? And if there is a top priority, non-pandemic related, what is it? Well, I want to extend on the the uh, previous question as well that, that you asked, Rose, and to this question. Our goal, uh, bar none, is to make sure that we are reaching and teaching each and every child who uh, is enrolled in Gwinnett County Public Schools. We do know that gaps uh, that existed prior to COVID have been exacerbated by uh, this pandemic. And so the strategies that I shared with you earlier about uh, accelerating learning and providing opportunities for students, uh, you know, whether it's digital or in person, we now have an obligation and an opportunity to do something that's never been done before, mm -hmm. right? To continue uh, ensuring that our students have what they need instructionally, socially, emotionally, and academically so that they can be successful beyond either their current grade level or if they're seniors beyond Gwinnett County Public Schools, uh, where they're able to be not only successful, more importantly, significant in their post-secondary career, their career-connected learning opportunities, and certainly in life. That is uh, our reason for existing. Dr. Calvin Watt, newly named superintendent of Gwinnett County Public Schools. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for coming on and answering the questions. The community appreciates it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. You too. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Yes, I'm Rose Scott as always. It is the South's largest pride festival and the city of Atlanta's largest parade, typically attracting hundreds of thousands of festival and event goers. But for the second consecutive year, Atlanta Pride 20, well now Atlanta Pride 2021 will not happen. So all the festivities, including the parade, this was tapped for October 9th through the 10th of this year. Let's talk to Jamie Ferguson, executive director of the Atlanta Pride Committee. Jamie, thanks so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Hi, it's great to be here with you. Jamie, how difficult was it for you all to make the call to cancel this year's Atlanta Pride again? It's incredibly heartbreaking. Um, you know, Atlanta Pride is a year-round organization. The festival and parade are not all we do, but mm -hmm. they are certainly at the heart of what we do. And our staff and board and volunteers have worked all year to plan this event. 
We were incredibly hopeful in the spring and summer as COVID rates declined and there was a vaccine. Um, but unfortunately, it's, it's just not safe to have an event of our size at this point in Atlanta. So um, we are doing the right thing and we feel good that we're doing the right thing, but it's, it's incredibly heartbreaking. It's not the outcome that anyone wanted. Did you all consider perhaps was there a way we could modify this, maybe not have the parade, maybe reduce the number of vendors or overall events, or was it a mindset of, look, we're going to do it the way we do it, which is big and grand, or we're not going to do it at all? So we considered all of the options and a couple of things. So we're normally an event of around 350,000 people throughout the weekend. Mm -hmm. And in order to get to a class B event in the city of Atlanta, we'd have to get below 50,000. Now, I'm not even sure that a 50,000 people event could be done safely (laughs) per public health uh, standards, but there's really no way that we could cut our attendance by 75 or 80%. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we can't make those people stay home. And then after all of our conversations with public health officials, it was really clear that it, it just isn't safe to have that many people gathered in close proximity. You know, right now, particularly with the Delta variant, it spreads more outdoors than some of the previous COVID variants, especially in our type of event where people, they might be outside, but they're shoulder to shoulder, you know, for hours at a time. And, you know, it's a, it's a party environment, at mm-hmm. least after dark. And so there's really not a way to enforce mask mandates. We can put the signs up all day long, mm-hmm. but we can't actually, you know, pull the masks up over people's faces. So we really thought about all of those things and uh, just decided that the safest thing for everyone to do is for us to to hold off until the COVID numbers are better. Did you look at and see if any other Pride uh, events that took place, because normally typically it takes place in June, did y'all look and consult mm-hmm. with any of the other you know, Pride uh, festivals throughout the nation, see what they did? And you're right, you cannot tell 70% of 350,000 people only y'all can't come, but the rest of y'all, can, you can't control that. <laughs> no. And, um, you know, absolutely. So most of the big events in June were canceled this year. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of folks who got in like San Diego Pride in the in kind of the summer months where things were a little lower in July and August. But most of the big events in the South um, happened in the fall. And, um, you know, Gainesville Pride canceled this week. Austin Pride just canceled. Mm-hmm. Louisville Pride just canceled. Um, Charlotte Pride just canceled all of their August and September events. They're waiting a couple of weeks for October. Orlando Pride and Nashville Pride are, you know, considering. Um, although we're, you know, significantly bigger than all of them. But we've definitely been in close contact with Pride events all over the country. And unfortunately, most have had to cancel for a second year in a row. You mentioned your volunteers. Normally, you all have hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. You think about the vendors and the sellers who are in the park, all of that. And then, look, it's also about revenue, too. And this is the second year in a row for you all. I'm not sure how this breaks down with your sponsors, but uh, if you all, you all are losing some revenue, some much-needed revenue that you need for your, for your, for your organization. For sure. So 80% of our income is typically related to the festival and parade. Um, And so it hurts not to have that sponsorship and that income, but well-being of our community is above money Mm -hmm. always. Um, And it helps that even though most of our income is related to those events, also most of our expenses are as well. So 
there are obviously some expenses that we've already incurred for this year that we can't get back, but most of our vendors and the people that we work with are being incredibly understanding. You know, they know what the state of COVID is right now. And so we're still in a strong financial position. It's um, luckily we were in a very good position going into COVID. We spent several years building up our reserves for a rainy day. And this is, this is the rainy day. Um, but we're, we're in a good position. Um, it, it's, but you're right that it hurts. Is it too too early to start looking at next year and maybe possibly, will you all ever think about going back to June or are you happy with October? We know it's much cooler in October, <laughs> that's for sure. That is the million dollar question. So I, I've gotten that answer a lot. I will say the first thing is we don't want to wait till next October. We, uh, I'm not, I don't have any uh, news to break right now. Um, but Sounds like you always- do, Jamie. Well, I can't. I'd get in trouble right now. We are already looking at, I will say we're looking at a a large spring event, but that's entirely dependent upon getting COVID under control and it being safe. We're looking at a large spring event that would not be the festival and parade or like replacement for the festival and parade, Mm -hmm. but we know people want to get together, you know, and so we're we're looking at that. Um, You know, I don't have anything specific to commit to, but some of our um, sponsors and community partners are have said they're interested. So, so we're in the we're in the planning phases. Um, as for moving back to June, probably not. Um, the in, the in the rules that were put in place in the drought about ten years ago are still in place at the city. That limits the number of Class A events um, in the summer in Piedmont Park. Uh, we'd have to kick somebody else out to get a spot, and you know. We're actually pretty pretty happy with October. The weather's great. It means we're not fighting with other large prides for entertainment or vendors or sponsors um, or tourism. And you know, we still put on a month full of events in June. It mm-hmm. might not be a festival, but we do a lot of education and advocacy events in June. In 2019, we had a Stonewall March, and um, you know, we really love our June Stonewall Month event. So I don't think we're moving the festival and parade back. You know, I guess never say never, but I, I don't see it happening anytime soon. As we wrap up, when you talk about, we know what this means not only just to the Atlanta community, but the the, the South, the Southeastern region, even nationally. And you look at how Atlanta Pride you know has evolved over the years. Now, as executive director, though, anything you want to add? that you think is missing or some other elements that you that maybe now with this time that you have off, not have off, but now with this time that you all have, you can possibly next year bring something new on board. Don't, I'm not saying get rid of the parade because I'll get an email. Yeah. I would never say that. <laughs> no, keep, no. Keep the parade. Um, maybe, you know, before COVID, we were doing a lot of growth into advocacy and education spaces. And we've done, continued some of that but we just hired our first full-time director director of equity and engagement. He is hard at work already planning some uh, work around equity in our community, around diversity and inclusion and programming for our year round events. And I imagine that that will bring lots of new things to the festival and parade as well. And what do you want to, your lasting message you want to say to everyone who was looking forward again to the upcoming Atlanta pride festival and parade. What do you want them to know? We share your disappointment, but we want everyone to get vaccinated, to mask up, to stay well, and uh, come gather with us again as soon as it's safe. All right. Jamie Ferguson, Executive Director of the Atlanta Pride Committee. Thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you for letting the community know what you all are doing and considering everyone's health and safety. All right. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. 
And a programming note, next week we'll check in with organizers of Atlanta's Black Gay Pride. Now, as we know, their events are still scheduled and we plan to hear what COVID-19 measures they plan to have in place. We want to note also, too, that a lot of these issues and concerns come from you, the community, our listeners, and we greatly appreciate it. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on anything that you heard on today's program or any other program. As always, you can send an email to rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online as well, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because we'll be there. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us. WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.